Well, tonight we come to one of the great classic stories of Scripture about the misuse of power and how God views it. It is, as we've just heard read, the account of one defenceless peasant landowner called Naboth, callously overridden by the crown. And it's a brilliantly told story, isn't it? It uh, makes us laugh and it makes us cry at the same time. Ahab acting like a spoilt teenager, sulking in his bed, not getting what he wants. And at the same time, this appallingly cold and calculated violence of Jezebel and Ahab. And of course, the story is as contemporary as it is colourful. It may not quite be the same, but here is a picture in Kelvin Grove, famous picture of the Scottish land clearances. The land grabbing of Mugabe's war veterans in Zimbabwe. The struggle in South America and elsewhere between indigenous peoples and multinational corporations. And more generally, of course, the appalling abuse of power involved in things in our day, such as child labour and human trafficking. And as tonight we continue to begin to think about, as Christians, being salt and light in our community, these issues of power and greed are issues that we cannot avoid. Naboth, it seems, was a typical, quiet-living, subsistence farmer. No doubt one of the 7,000 God had told Elijah about, as we thought with Angus last week, who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Naboth's vineyard had probably been in his family for generations. It was his livelihood. It's what gave him standing in his community. It's what he was looking forward to passing on to his children. It was in a culture where land and identity are so much wedded, almost part of who he was. As it says about Africa, land is always with us. It gives us life. And when we die, it takes us back. It was that sort of wedding of land and people that we have here. And Naboth's misfortune, of course, was that his vineyard was a little too near the straying eye of a greedy king. Ahab's main palace, it seems, was in Samaria, but it seems he had a summer residence in Jezreel, and this is where this awful incident happened. Now, at first sight, Ahab's request to buy the vineyard for a vegetable plot 
seems reasonable enough. He offers Naboth either a better vineyard, not a bad deal, or cash in hand. It could even be seen to be an attractive offer. But actually the reality is very different. For not only is there the sheer greed and covetousness of somebody who was so wealthy, but Ahab knew all too well the significance of land in Israel. It is, according to the Levitical law, important that land remains in the family. And here is an important verse, Leviticus 25, 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in a land of foreigners and strangers. The only time land could be sold was in the case of extreme poverty and then, even then, on the 50th year, called the Jubilee year, it had to revert to the original family owners. And so deep within this, the Israelite psyche was this whole understanding that land was a gift, it was an inheritance from God. And so every bit of land had to be stewarded carefully as a particular gift from God. This was not just a bit of real estate, it was not just a commodity that to be sold, even if someone like the foreigner Jezebel thought that. Even the king and queen are not above law. And so with more than a touch of rebuke, this little man speaks to the king and he literally stands his ground. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And you sort of get the sense, don't you, that Ahab knows quite well that his request was out of order. He never expected that his contempt for both the Lord and this man to be so clearly exposed, and that's presumably why he doesn't press his case, he simply backs off and he sulks in his bed. That is, until Ahab's wife finds out. Jezebel, we read, is appalled. Kings, where she comes from, in Phoenicia, get exactly what they want. No way is she going to be the queen of a wimp. And so with this frighteningly seared conscience of hers, she plots to dispose of this inconvenient little man who dares to dwarf her husband and his uh, gardening pleasures. So she writes a fabricated story on official stationery with an official seal and sets Naboth up to be falsely accused. And soon Naboth is no more. And indeed, as we will see in a few minutes, all his sons were murdered too. So there was no inheritance. Of course, what's really frightening is that the local elders and nobles comply with the request so unquestioningly. 
They were either themselves questing for a favour from the king, or, probably more likely, they were so frightened of this regime, like any totalitarian state, that they just complied. Hey-ho, life is so easy, isn't it? When you have power. Ahab, my dear, get up, stop sulking, pull out your dummy, put on your gardening clothes. I've got really good news for you. And it's worth pausing, isn't it? And you might like to think about this as a congregation. How many of the Ten Commandments have been broken in this story? Perhaps you'd just like to call them out. How many of the Ten Commandments are broken in this story? Any ideas? What, what are they? Thou shalt not murder. Yeah, that's one, obvious one. What else? You shall not covet. Steal. False witness. Yeah, I never thought about that. I've got six listed, but I could add seven. Thank you, Sam. No other gods and no other idols. Do not murder, do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbour. Do not cover your neighbour's house or anything that belongs to your neighbour. I mean, you couldn't get a more blatant story of breaking the commandments, could you, than this story? It's quite astonishing. And then, of course, part two of the story. And notice how bracketed around this second half of the story, if you have your Bible open, you'll see verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. But notice how the story ends with exactly the same repetition. Verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Royal authority is not quite as absolute as Jezebel would like to believe. For suddenly, God steps in. And Elijah now recovered from his mental and spiritual collapse that we were thinking about last week, now confronts the king. Ahab had previously called Elijah, if you remember earlier in the story, troubler in Israel, but now he is called my enemy. Of course, Elijah is hardly the enemy. Ahab is his own worst enemy. But Elijah does not mince his words. He repeats what God has told him almost more strongly. I have found you because you have sold yourself to evil. What a phrase. In the eyes of the Lord. And then with great courage and colour, he pronounces judgment on both Ahab and Jezebel. I, says the Lord, am going to bring disaster on you. And then, of course, this story actually ends very surprisingly, doesn't it? With Ahab actually repenting. And God, with remarkable mercy... Delaying judgment for a generation. So here is this sobering story. And for many of us here, it's a story we've heard many times. 
Over the last few weeks, I've been reading a popular biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I was interested to read the story, and I was mentioning it to our house group on Wednesday, that in 1929, Bonhoeffer took a study year to New York to Union Theological College. And one day he went with a German friend to the theatre to see what was then a famous anti-war film, All Quiet on the Western Front. And in that film, which is made to shock, there is a graphic scene of a German stabbing a Frenchman in the trenches. And the film slows down and you see the horror of this Frenchman dying and then the German crying over the corpse and bewailing what has happened and asking for forgiveness. And this film moved Bonhoeffer and his friend to tears. But as the film was being shown, some pro-German young people in the theatre were laughing and were cheering when the French soldier died. And Bonhoeffer says he was so sickened by that incident that he became all his life, although the ending is quite interesting, of course, he became a committed pacifist. And there is something about this story that is meant to sicken us and is meant to stir us. This story is meant to get under our skin. For it is a forceful reminder of how God hates all abuse of power. It grieves God. It offends God. It angers God. And God in his tender compassion is outraged whenever the weak are oppressed, whenever the vulnerable are taken advantage of, whenever the poor are exploited, and whenever innocent young children are abused and the unaware are conned. Listen to these words, and I put them on the screen, from Micah chapter Two. These could have been the words of Elijah, couldn't they? Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light they carry it out because it is their power to do so. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes, they rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. What a remarkable parallel. And this story of Ahab and Jezebel reminds us of two things. First, that God sees all abuse of power. And if you have your Bible, you might like to flip over to 2 Kings chapter 9 and just turn to verse 24 because here we get the sequel to the story. Then Jehu drew his bow, 2 Kings 9, 24, and shot 
Joram, who was the son of Ahab, between the shoulders. The arrows pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bigkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him. And then these words, yesterday, I saw, I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of land, declares the Lord. God sees. Look at these words from James chapter 4. Look. The wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. God sees and God judges all abuse of power. Of course, the story raises questions. So why didn't God step in before Naboth's death? Why didn't God bump off Jezebel a lot earlier than this? And these, of course, are questions we'll never be able to answer. But we do know that judgment will come to all abuse of power. There's a telling little comment in the Jewish Talmud, the commentary of the rabbis on the scriptures, where they say, power buries all who yield it. Power buries those who wield it. And I don't know about you, but my sense is that there is so much abuse of power around that we can almost be desensitised to it. And my prayer is that we will begin to feel again as God feels for what is going on in our world. And there are times, and maybe this is the time for you, when we are called to be a voice for the voiceless. It may simply be as simple as standing up for an elderly person who lives near you, someone who lacks in confidence, who has been shoddily treated, and standing up for them. For us, as a church, as we support something like BMS, we support, in part, legal advocacy programs in North Uganda and elsewhere. Many of us were very moved in a seminar series we had two years ago when we were looking at Amos and the representative for Scotland from um, the International Justice Mission spoke that night. They had a little bookstall and a book that I acquired, Good News About Injustice. And let me just read one story that illustrates 
Christians standing up for the abuse of power. Sway Pak is a Cambodian village located just a few kilometers from Nong Peng. On my first visit to this shanty community, the evidence of the horrific abuse endured by its children was overwhelming. The streets were jammed with brothels, openly peddling children for sex. And then the author says this, I had seen trafficking before, but no situation as brutal and gut-wrenching as the shameless sale of these young girls, the smallest of them only five years old. The darkness in the village was almost palpable. And it is impossible to think that the local police were unaware of what was happening. And then he says, in Svei Pak, brothel owners, we found out, were paying the local police to protect them, to carry on the trade. We collected our evidence and we presented it to the local police officials, but they repeatedly ignored our evidence. Eventually, this is the International Justice Mission workers in Cambodia, eventually we approached the US ambassador to Cambodia. We shared the evidence we had collected with him and asked for help. Through the advocacy of this ambassador and much persistence by ourselves, we finally got word that the Deputy Prime Minister of Cambodia had ordered his people to work to get these girls out. In one single day of operation in 2003, dozens of Cambodian police partnered with our team on the ground and we rescued 37 girls and we arrested 13 perpetrators. Among those arrested, was the former district police commander as Faypak. It's challenging, isn't it? Christians involved in abuse of power in today's world. And then secondly, and finally, I think this story is not only meant to sicken us, but this story of Ahab is also meant to stir us. And of course, it invites us to model as Christians something very, very different. Central to our faith is the belief that God redeems the world through love and not through force. Central to our faith is that it is the weakness of the cross that has, has renewed and rescued this world. And contrary to what the world screams at us, fullness of life never depends on our having power and influence. Ahab's land grabbing is the very antithesis of what God calls us to as we follow Jesus Christ. Jonathan Sachs, in a book that some of us had recommended when he came to visit a few months ago. The former chief rabbi, in his book, 
that won a Templeton Prize, not in God's name, confronting religious violence. This is what Rabbi Sachs says. Religion acquires influence when it relinquishes power. Civilizations are judged not by power, but by their concern for the powerless. Is that a remarkable statement? Not by wealth, but how well they treat the poor. Not when they seek to be invulnerable, but when they care for the vulnerable. And then, remarkably, referring to this story of Elijah, or the story we looked at with Angus last week, he ends by saying this, when religion becomes an earthquake, a whirlwind and a fire, then it can no longer hear the still small voice of God summoning us to freedom. And I wonder how this story stirs us as we go into a new week. How can we lay down power, as Jesus did, and learn to live according to the New Testament, that God's power is made perfect in weakness? I like this quote from the former Archbishop of Canterbury when he says this, Thankfulness is the soil in which pride does not easily grow. And we could say, thankfulness is the soil in which power does not easily grow. And I'm sure you will agree that there are few more attractive virtues, more that brings fragrance to our society than the virtue of contentment. The very opposite of Ahab's grabbing. People who are truly thankful for what they have, who truly live out what it is to be those who are rich in Jesus Christ. People who, when you meet them, there's something about them that they give, even if it's just a smile, rather than somehow wanting to demand. Godliness with contentment is great gain, writes Paul to Timothy. And along with contentment, a crucified self. Where we come to the point of realising, as Bonhoeffer did, that to follow Christ really means that we are not living this life for ourselves, but for Christ. Whoever loses his life for my sake, said Jesus, will find it. Don't know what Angus was thinking as he was preparing last week, but my suspicion, and I'll talk to you afterwards, Angus, is that the Elijah who confronted Ahab over Naboth's vineyard, tonight's story, was probably a very different Elijah who confronted Ahab at Carmel. And between these two confrontations was that personal crisis that Angus spoke so powerfully about last week. That emotional and spiritual breakdown that Elijah had. 
And I have a sense that through the pain of what Elijah in his utter exhaustion experienced, he now comes to Ahab with a new sort of authority and power, much more utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God and that still, small voice. I was thinking about the university mission that's going to happen a week on Monday, and do pray for it, the story. And it hasn't really been explained to us, and it's our fault, but as some of you may know, this year the the, uh, CU have um, done something slightly more daring. They've ordered a big marquee that's going to go up next to the university library, costing quite a lot of money. But instead of having Madras College or other venues, they've created their own venue of a big tent that's coming up next week. And as I was thinking about the university mission, the events week that's coming a week on Monday, my mind went back to a very famous university mission. To when the great evangelist of the 19th century, Dwight Moody, came to Cambridge. He was the American sort of 19th century version of Billy Graham. He was not academic. And in the mission of 1882, he was mercilessly laughed at for this very simple, straightforward American preacher speaking to all these proud Cambridge undergraduates. But as the week went on, there was a remarkable move of the Spirit of God that in his weakness, in his willingness to come to such a difficult place, an uncomfortable place as an American non-academic, in his weakness God honoured him. There is a famous New Testament scholar whose books some still study, J.H. Moulton, And he was an undergraduate, and he later wrote, quite remarkably, I regard that mission week in Cambridge as the most momentous week in the religious history of this country during my lifetime. And a few decades afterwards, his successor at Moody Memorial Church, R.A. Torrey, wrote a little book that some of you may have seen, simply entitled, Why God Used D. L. Moody. And his answer was very simple. He says, he was a fully surrendered person. Fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. He was willing to die to himself and his reputation to lay down power, and in his weakness, to know extraordinary power from the Spirit of God. Moody was a very portly guy. And R.A. Torrey writes, every ounce of that 280-pound body of his belonged to God. This story should sicken us because it's happening today in so many places, the abuse of power, 
And this story should stir us to the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. To lay down power as we follow Jesus and in a very different way, in our weakness, to find the true power of the love of God that will redeem the world.